everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're back with episode eight. It's very good to be back. Oh my God, it's episode eight already? (laughs) And they said it wouldn't last. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. I was going to ask how you both were, but Lisa, you're obviously very excited. (laughs) Definitely. You know what I reckon we should do one time? I should say I'm Liam. And you should say that you're Leanne, and Leanne should say that she's Lisa, and see if anyone picks it up. Just to freak everyone out. Yep. I'm just not sure anyone would care, Lisa. I don't know. <laughs> well, we've got off to we it. fans, Leanne. No, is that right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Wrangling this podcast back into schedule. Not even 50 seconds in and it's gone off the rails. Uh, it's great to be back with you. We hope everyone's enjoyed our previous episodes. We're going to get right into it, as usual, with our news of the week. Um, it's going to come from me this week, uh, but it was actually sort of sent to me by Lisa and um, we all had a chat of it sort of via email over the week. But um, I'll include the link in the show notes, but it's an article by NPR, which is sort of the public radio station in the US. Um, and its headline is A Harsh Critique of Federally Funded Pre-K, which is sort of what they call preschool. Um, it's It sort of basically is an article by... Um, someone who's looked at the research around particularly sort of modern and recent um, preschool education um, grants and, and uses in the US, and it's basically come up with a lot of big questions about their effectiveness. And um, it's probably worth thinking about, particularly in terms of our chat a few weeks ago about the um, national evidence base, but um, we don't want to go get into it too quickly here because it might sort of be another topic down the track, but uh, it's... Yeah, it, 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 I guess it sort of puts us on the spot about how well we're necessarily implementing what we sort of know works in early childhood, in the US particularly. There's some research that says it's maybe not working that fantastically and it's costing a lot of money and not necessarily working. Did the two of you get a chance to have a look at it? What are your thoughts? What was most amazing to me is what they actually said educators were doing. So that um, they said that 25% of the time um, was spent in transitions, 25% of the time was spent in whole group instruction and free choice or choice time as they called it was less than 15% of the time. I don't think it would be quite as bad if you did that study in Australia because they had some things like a lot of them are operating not out of purpose-built centres, so things like toilets are a long way from where the main part of the service is. But I still think that, you know, that'd be interesting to see if it was done in Australia. And also I think whether those transitions were actually... <clears throat> empty time, whether they were being used effectively as teachable moments or whether they were just um, e- empty sort of moments as well. And it just got me thinking about teacher quality and how we maybe need to talk a lot more about this with both within this podcast and more broadly in the sector about how teacher quality is impacting on perceptions as well of early childhood education and whether we need to step up the game a bit more and think more about that quality. Yeah, I think the key line for me is um, it says a lot of these issues in Farron's view, so Farron's the researcher who sort of looked into these programs, a lot of these issues come from pouring the fizzy juice of pre-K into glasses sized for much older children. 
We really should not treat these four-year-olds as though they are fourth graders and can do the same things, she says. Um, it seems to be, in some ways, a bit of a specific American problem, so I think they focus a lot on school readiness and sort of uh, specific programs. But I think there's maybe a lesson there just about how we are we making sure we're targeting and tailoring the work we do with um, in the birth of five space to stuff that we know is actually work, which is the play-based, which is not large group sizes, it's, you know, small groups, it's it's work around social-emotional learning. Um, and and I, I liked it too, Liam, that it was someone who was really dedicated to the sector who was raising the, raising the alarm about it, I suppose, and really questioning it, which I think is a great, it's sort of quite brave as well to, to put it out there and say, you know, are we doing well enough here? Yeah. We'll, Isn't that what we do all the time? Well, to, well, yeah, some of us, maybe not all of us, <laughs> and maybe not all of us that oh, well. Sorry, I meant us three here. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Come and interview us. Well, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people do, but I think there's always a, a bit of, um, you know, a, there's there's apprehension about doing it because you want to ensure that the, the profession is represented really well, and. If we're questioning our own uh, reason for being, then I think it is a that is a bit nerve wracking, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, we might uh, kick on with our main event for this uh, week, which is, as usual, we've got two topics to cover tonight. Our first topic uh, is uh, headed up as "Does language matter?" So we're going to be talking about the terminology and language that's used or not used or should be used in the early education sector. Um, a topic two is going to be something a little bit different. So on Wednesday, Kate Ellis, who's the Labor Shadow Minister for Early Childhood Education, gave an address at the National Press Club. I was very lucky to attend and uh, I had some, what I did sort of straight away after that was have a chat with two of my colleagues that attended as well. So we're going to bring you that chat um, after our first topic tonight. So we're sort of going to skive away from the three of us and and, and go into that uh, sort of pre-recorded one, and then we'll be coming back for our recommendations and wrapping up the podcast. But let's dive straight into the first topic, does language matter? So this is, you know, something I've been thinking about for a long, long time. I thought I might, um, and, the, and the kind of things we're talking about is things like, is it still okay to say childcare? Is it still okay to say daycare? Should we be sort of militantly insisting that everyone does um, early childhood education and care and that kind of stuff. Um, Leanne, I thought I might turn to you first. You've had a long and distinguished career in early childhood education with a particular... I, I think, I think Lisa, this is saying that you and I are really old, right? He's slipping to me. <laughs> <laughs> Experienced, Leanne. Experienced. And with a particular focus on leadership in early childhood, which is where a lot of this, I think, comes back to, and it's definitely an issue around maybe not so much individual leadership but sector leadership. Um you know, in general, what's your answer to that question? Does language matter in the sector? Um, I think, well, yes, absolutely. It does. does <laughs> the leading matter. question, to be fair. One hundred percent. Yeah, it it definitely does, and I, I, I think in thinking about this over because it has been thirty years since I started out. Actually, it might even be longer since I started um, training because I think my first year of uh, at the Newtown Nursery School Teachers College, shout out to anybody else who went there, uh, is, it was 1981. And I think even even that, even thinking about it, there was Newtown Nursery School Teachers College, there was Sydney Kindergarten Teachers College, 
Um, everybody was better looking at Sydney Kindergarten Teachers College and they wore better clothes. Um, but we were a more rabble rousing at Nursery School Teachers College. I don't know whether that links to the language or not. But I bet we could go through and pick where every one of your era <laughs> was trained. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's going through, I, I think it was how we sort of felt about ourselves being early childhood teachers. Now, that actually hasn't changed over the years. We still refer to early childhood teachers, but we slip between the educators and teachers at all times, trying not to hurt anybody's feelings ever. And I think in terms of what it's been called, it's been childcare, it's been preschool, it's been early childhood education, it's been, you, you name it. And I remember- Like nurseries. Yeah, that well, day nurseries. That's right, and that was a, that has a very long history from the eighteen hundreds as well. And I remember there was one situation. Actually, it was in the eighties. Uh, as a, a member of uh, an organisation called Community Childcare, where there were T-shirts that were being made, and it said, "I'm not just a, I'm not just a babysitter. I'm a childcare worker." I think they said, and one of the uh, lecturers at Newtown said, that's terrible, we should be calling ourselves early childhood teachers. So in all of my rambling, all I'm trying to say is that we never seem to settle on any particular professional language and it does change so much. So even in the last three years, we've seen the name of early childhood services change how many times, maybe four or five times. Uh, and this perspective comes from government uh, we change our language around the people who are involved in early childhood education by the, the sector itself changes that language. So I'll give 10 points to the first thing? person who can name what in the current government what our sector is currently called. I can, I can. Oh, Lisa. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I actually know it because of a tweet of yours, um, Leanne. A few weeks ago, you pointed out that everything on the Department of Education's website, that's the Federal Government Department of Education's website, called us Early Childhood and Childcare, ECCC. <laughs> so no longer were we Early Education and Care, as we had been ever since the National Quality Framework went in in 2012, now we're early childhood and childcare. So being a, a bit of a, an activist, I immediately mm -hmm. sent off a tweet to um, the Edu spokesperson, who's the person that runs the Twitter account for the department, and also to the secretary of the department just for good measure, saying, you know, like... What, yeah, I just said, hey, your website seems to have forgotten that education and care services educate. What's up, guys? And it took about a week, but eventually they responded to my tweet and they said, education is fundamental to early childhood and the work of the department. ECCC is simply the name of our work area. And I went back to them and said, but in documents, um, you refer to services that deliver early education as the ECCC services. So it's not just the department's name of the work area, it's a fundamental change. And I said, words matter, Education it should be education and care services. They didn't come back to me again, but I then went back and looked and they have actually been using that um, terminology 
for a number of years on certain documents, not all documents, anything that relates to the law or to the regulations that govern us, uh, we're referred to as education and care services. But in all other things, departmental kind of things, it's early childhood and childcare. So, so I thought that was interesting. Reason, what do you think the reason is for that? Because that wasn't something that I noted on any anything that I've seen in the last few years. Have you seen that, Liam? Has that been something that you've come across? Well, for a little while after, when the... So, yeah, National Quality Framework 2012, so education and care was sort of starting to become the norm uh, with some exceptions. When the coalition took over in 2013, um, it was childcare and early learning, was it? Or um, That's right. Yeah, it was childcare yep. and early learning, and now it seems to have morphed again. Oh, look, I think... Look, <laughs> Part of me, I think, is, you know, if it's twisted between a conspiracy and a stuff-up, it's usually a stuff-up. I think it's just because they delight in changing their department names and areas all the time. So uh, I think, I don't well, think they've got... No, I'm actually saying that isn't what happened. Like, oh. as soon as we went into the Department of Education, we went in being called Early Childhood and Childcare. And that name's continued on, but then they corrected it for the law, etc., then when we went over to Social Security, we changed. Then when we came back to education, they just continued with what they'd always called us. So I think, so without without trying to get too bogged down in the detail, the, although it is so much fun, the machinations of government bureaucracy. So part of me thinks, well, the reason that this is constantly chopping and changing is because it is so fluid and because we're not necessarily, um, as a sector, united on this. So... You know, I'll, I'll speak from personal experience. It's still really common to hear educators and professionals and leaders in the sector saying childcare, they were saying, or even daycare or childcare workers. Um, I think it's really important to remember that when the early years learning framework, particularly under the National Quality Framework, was put in, it explicitly states that part of it is around developing a shared language for the sector. And I know that a lot of the um, fantastic, smart people who are behind the early years learning framework have that as a specific advocacy goal that would be sort of bring people to, to a point where we're sort of talking the same language and advocating in the same space. So to me, for advocacy reasons, that's why it matters so much. And um, it still worries me that, that, that we're, we're, it, still, it still seems to be a huge gap between where we maybe, well, where I want to be, let's not so I don't want to speak for the sector, and where a lot of the sector still sort of sits. But it's, it's interesting how um, things progress and they can grate on you as well, you know, and so you, you've changed your thinking and your language over time, Liam, and, and I don't know whether things are called the same that they were when you first entered the sector. You're very young, so they might still be <laughs> exactly the same. But even something like the word um, industry, that's one that can, mm. I think that tends to, great on people we call it a sector my eye starts um, twitching yeah because what do we produce industry well that's right things. i think we've, we've established that we're not producing goods um or producing you know a service we're actually delivering a service and that's where that that sector but then there's some people that object to the word service leanne because they say that a service is something that you you know supply for the exchange of money and that's just, you know, like, like we're not really doing that. So I know um, I often have discussions with Wendy from Mia Mia, Wendy Shepherd from Mia Mia, who says, no, it's not a service, it's a setting. 
And I think Wendy also sometimes refers to it as a school. I think her her thinking is, and gosh, she might listen to this and tell us exactly whether we've we've heard her correctly or not. But I think that there is um, some thinking that she has around calling it a school, so that it has that presence, like a like a the formal school setting as well. But the danger with that is that then it becomes too. Yeah, uh, to you know, lining children up and having tests and things. Yeah, and um, in thinking about that as well, sorry, just I wanted to just take it back to how we identify the substantive roles in early childhood settings. I'm going to call them early childhood settings. <laughs> and this, this is, I mean, we have we have the commonly accepted term educator now. And how does that then sit within the early childhood teacher's role? And should we call everybody educators or should we call people by the qualification that they have? I'm, I'm, what do you both think about that? I, th- I think that's a really difficult discussion to have. I've got really, really strong feelings about this. I um, talk to um, teachers at the IAU conference every couple of years and I always say... Yeah, everyone here is an everyone in our service is an educator, but some of your early childhood teachers, some of you had the nous and the intelligence and the get up and go to go and get that teaching degree and to get all those assignments in, etc. And I think that you need to own that name because that is your profession. If you just say I'm just one of the educators, it gives families no understanding that there is you know, different levels of qualification and that the conversation that they have with someone who is university educated may in fact be quite different than the conversation they have with someone who's just received their cert three. I think it's really important and I think it's really important to be proud of the fact that you're a teacher. Yeah, look, I think what I... Do you, I yeah. What about you, Liam? Yeah, because you're, you're of a younger generation. <laughs> look, I, I agree in, Prince, in, in general with Lisa um, I, that... It seems like madness that we kind of pretend that yeah that everyone's on an equal footing in the sector when they're not. Look, it, it, this is a really thorny issue. And I, if I if I can find the article, um, I will try and put it in the show notes. But a few years back uh, here in Canberra, there was a really interesting. There was an opinion piece I think in the Canberra Times by um, a I think an educational leader. I think a diploma qualified educator who was writing about the Big Steps campaign and. She'd mentioned something in there, and and look, it was probably just you know sort of poorly quoted, I think, by the by the um, uh, the author of the article rather than anything she'd said. But she'd mentioned she basically sort of you know broached that topic that the diploma the qualification was a higher qualification than the certificate three, which is a fact. Now the article was shared, I think, by Big Steps on Facebook. And this poor educator was torn to pieces in the comments, basically saying she, you know, she trashed certificate threes. She'd said, "I said there was this hideous example of tall poppy syndrome," and it was the most ridiculous puerile response to a fact: the diploma qualification is a higher level qualification than certificate three. The early childhood teacher qualification is a higher level qualification than the diploma. It, it, it doesn't. Dispar- like it, it doesn't disparage the inherent value of each of those things, but it's stating a fact that, that they are more than the others. Now, I think in the and sem- if you look at where they sit in the Leanne, you'd know this more than me. What's the the you know like the laddery thing of qualifications? 
I always feel nervous when someone says I know more than them. But um, Lisa, I think I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the Australian quality um, framework around qualifications. Sorry, the Australian it's qualifications, a qualifications framework. Qualifications framework. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and isn't there's... a diploma like the equivalent of a high school certificate? Isn't that where it falls? Oh, I don't. I think it's higher than that. But the but it is the sort of it's a actually that would be good to share um on our uh, on our page Liam as well as the Australian qualifications framework to look at what the what what contributes to those qualifications yeah but the general point I had around that was I think and I remember I did some thinking about it um after that sort of incident with the article happened and I think because the sector itself is so devalued and under pressure and poorly paid there is where the the optimum outcome would be everyone supports each other and we all rally around each other what actually happens because we're complicated tricky human beings is we actually tend to try and pull each other down and try to become big fish in small ponds and there's a huge issue with I think tall poppy syndrome in the in the sector so there's a couple of responses to that. One is to is to disparage higher level qualifications, and some of the commentary on, you know, that particular you know page was around, um, oh, you know, the early childhood teachers, you know, they're always the worst people there. They never blah, blah, they never do any work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that the real work is done by the certificate three uh, people. Now, in individual cases, that you know, I'm sure there are appalling ECTs, just as there are appalling certificate three educators and appalling diploma educators, but refusing to face the facts around that stuff so i you know i started as a, a non-qualified uh, educator i got my certificate three then my diploma uh, then my teaching degree um i don't have a master's or when's your master's yeah, yeah when's your yeah, master's yeah, not, not happening but i don't have those qualifications and i would never seek to in any way suggest that because you know i i you know but but i know more than those people because roughly you know xyz whatever ridiculous reasons i might have what I would always encourage people is, you know, that's a great qualification. You know, even for certificate three educators, that's so fantastic. You've got that qualification. What next? You know, going now if, you, if this is something you're committed to, go on and get your diploma. Go on and get your early childhood teaching qualification. Um, but so bringing it back to language, I think a bit. So, you know, the question you have were about how do we sort of deal with that um, that structure in centres. I look, I, I I I tend to say, look, we do. We have educators and teachers in centres and it's no use shying away from that. And we may as well just call people what they are, which is... Yeah, and I think there's, there's a bit of it. I just want to go back to the history of why we started to make um, that everybody, you know, in a particular um, service have the same name as well was because through the development of long daycare, some of the um, activities that people performed were the same and so I think this is where we get this kind of fl flattening out of of the the name that we that we ascribe to the roles because there was the idea that everybody was doing the same work people were taking on a teaching role they were taking on a a, a delivering experiences role and that that has changed significantly as well over time now with educational leaders leading the work of um, the leading the program and and delivering um, a bit more of a PD model around the curriculum so I think 
we sort of, yeah, I don't really know what I'm trying to say at this point, but I think I'm saying there is some It's a tricky, it, it is actually tricky. It's such a simple sort of does language matter, but it's really tricky because of where it sort of positions people. And and Lisa, it might, it might be worth, there's probably a couple of other things I wanted to raise, but Lisa, you know, some of the fun, well, fun for us, probably not fun for some of the poor people we've been discussing, but we occasionally chuck on Twitter each other um examples of uh in our view terrible early childhood center names um oh, a couple of yes. my oh, a couple of <laughs> and and well it's probably been mean to do examples although i really want to but part of it for me is around we're not going to be taken seriously like at the end of the day i think we all need to be you know shoulders to the wheel about making the business of early childhood sorry the you know sector of early childhood education better because in the end that's going to make things better for Australia's children all of them so if you open a new center and call it you know precious moments with a z which was an actual early childhood center in Canberra that I wanted to call the police every time I drove past because they were claiming to educate children but couldn't spell their own name uh, I've been doing fun all day with kids with a z I just like that and look, yes, I, I will bear the charge of elitist, pompous. Liam wants to have no fun. I, I will take that charge any day of the week because we are <laughs> or not. Friends. Yeah, we are not going to be taken seriously. It's sector if we want what we want, which is, you know, better quality services. We want educators who are paid a decent wage. We want educators and teachers to be paid a different decent wage and be treated as professionals. Why would you go and work to, at, a, at a place called, you know, cheeky chickens childcare? That's absolute but, 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 insanity. But what about the market? The marketing around that. Lisa, you're a bit of an expert on the, the marketing area on this. And isn't it while we don't have early childhood education embedded in the landscape of education, we still have to market it. And the people that we're marketing to are our families. And do they see those names as being something that they can emotionally link to? Look, they, they may well, but I don't. I don't see I don't see a correlation. The ones that are called those um, names with bad spellings, etc. You look at their websites. You look at you know pictures of what the children are doing. You look at their environments and go, I can see how that service has gotten that name. It's kind of a bit of a philosophy around children are cute and you know we're going to treat them as objects kind of thing. Whereas the ones that are kind of, you know, the more premium kind of service it is, the more they're talking about education, along with their yoga and, you know, nutritionists and things like that. But they often get the, like, the um, ones where you'll see, you know, um, most talking about the early years learning framework are the ones where it's, the um the 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 services that are pitching at really highly educated parents so yeah does that make sense yeah and i i think that's i think that's some of the point that i was making around the marketing lisa is that it is it's marketing to to families in particular ways the one that you've identified there and and by in using some of the names and some of the approaches is to, to bring families in. I suppose that was a little bit of what I was trying to say uh, back back earlier in the conversation. And while we don't have this kind of agreed, you know, access and priority for early childhood education, 
marketing is king. And so that's the sort of language that we have to continue to use or not. Yeah, Hopefully not. unfortunately. I think one of the things that always strikes me when you think about how language matters or if language matters is two things. One is my experience as a writer. We writers think about every word that we put on a page and it's never a politically neutral choice. You're always choosing a word to advance a position and people who are really good at that can do it so that you're not even aware that you were reading outright propaganda but it's you know words are you know like I can read departmental stuff and know instantly what's actually sitting under the words because of the words they've chosen and I can persuade people of things, I think, by the words that I choose. And nowhere is that more prevalent than in how um, the Australian government and, in fact, the previous Australian government started to use the word illegal um, to um, talk about refugees, uh, asylum seekers. The use of that word was chosen really deliberately because it conjures up a sense of doing something that's not right. Even though it isn't legal to seek asylum, it's in fact a perfectly legal thing, that word became so connoted that it instantly, you know, it, you just had to say the word illegal and people would rush to one side of the or the other of the argument. And I think that you know, that's when we see the power of one word like that, then we have to fight for the word like education. We have to fight for early childhood teachers. We have to work fight for um, services and a sector, sorry, a sector rather than an industry because those words really matter. And, and language, it does, and language should progress. It should progress with with the evolution of a sector or a field, for sure. And it should reflect contemporary language. So there's actually nothing wrong with with language changing. But it's, as you're saying, Lisa, it's actually what it um, insinuates. It's what, it's the picture it's, that it presents. I kind of agree with that and I kind of disagree because, like, teachers and schools have been called teachers and schools for forever right, with our smorgasbord of, you know, daycare and long daycare and early childhood services and early education and care and, you know, family daycare, et cetera, et cetera, it's so complex that we draw up um, glossaries for new entrants to the field True. so that they understand what we're talking about. Yeah. If we have to do that for those that are working inside the field, how can parents who are only you know, only in this sector for, you know, five years or maybe if they've got, you know, two children, eight years, you know, then how can they possibly get a handle on it? I think we have to settle on some language and stick to it and promote it. So maybe we need to have a, a, a professional, a, an agreement around professional language and some can be fluid in it because but I, yeah, but language I think, has changed in schools even though the, yeah. the, the, the designation of where children go and who 
teaches them has not changed. But I think we do have, we, we actually have that agreement. To me, it's the National Quality Framework. Now, we have that agreement that no one's agreed to, unfortunately. So neither the government nor swaths, swaths of the sector, you know, nor individuals. But I think that, to me, the simplest way to move this, you know, discussion forward is to say, well, the language in the National Quality Framework is is our language. We're early childhood education and care centres. We're educators and teachers. It and is, but you know, if I if I pitch an article to a newspaper about early education and care, they won't print it. Yeah, but I think you know, and, and the other because the other story I was going to tell you is a few years ago. I can't remember exactly where. So I've been writing my blog. Um, which you can find at www.liammcnicholas.com. Um, for since about we take hats, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> since about 2011. Um, so it's been it's been a while, now and I remember a few years ago back, I did I made this decision, and I can't exactly remember exactly the specific reason why, but I decided I was so sick of having to have this argument about the childcare versus early childhood versus ECEC in particular. And I think I just decided, you know what, maybe we just need to reclaim it. We need to actually shift what that word means. We're not, like, for that reason, Lisa, the media's not going to change. Government's not going to change. Maybe we just need to reclaim it. I probably wrote about six months' worth of posts on there that use childcare. I, I hate it now because I've now, again, rethought, which I think, you know, we, we, we should be able to do. And I, I, I'm trying not to beat myself too up, too up too much about it. And I'm very much at the moment, you know, the language is actually hugely important and we're just going to have to do the long, slow slog to shift. But um, I deliberately also didn't then go, I was really tempted to go back and change all those articles and actually change them back. But I thought, well, no, it actually reflects my thinking on this topic, which is complex and difficult and challenging. And I get the point, Lisa, about, you know, particularly in the media, but I think that's going to be a long time changing regardless even if you know we there, there was a directive from on high, you know right now that that's not going to change. But what will slowly change if we can't even change in the sector if we can't get an agreement on it, we may as well give up now. And I think we've got to fight the battle in the sector first. And as the more research and the more common that sort of birth to five um, importance of early learning becomes, I think they will slowly shift as we go along. Do you do you know the one that I really really object to? It's ECEC. The reason I object to it is for two reasons. One is because it's all capitals, so it's really hard to read in a sentence. You you have to stop before you say it. I also object to it because people say ECEC when they actually mean education and care, and yet by putting that in, they're you know, cutting out middle-aged, middle, sorry, it's not called middle-aged care. <laughs> you know, it's middle yeah. child. Yeah. yeah, childhood care. But it's just, it's part of the plethora of acronyms and um, uh, and jargon that's used in the sector that excludes people outside the sector. Now, every sector has their own jargon and it might be fine to talk to a friend about, the, about ECAC, but when you're writing in a publication whether it's only going to be read in the sector or read outside the sector, don't use that kind of terminology. Yeah, and I've definitely been uh, guilty of that in the past myself. But, um, look, we might start to wrap up. We've been having this, you know, is, a, is, is an interesting and fun topic. We've, we've probably been um, talking about it for 
at the at the reach of the limit of people willing to listen to it. But um, look, as 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 ever, if you have any uh, thoughts on the language we've used this week, you know, please we'll have our contact information at the end um, of the podcast as per usual. But we'll be taking a short musical interlude between topics, and when we come back through the magic of editing and audio recording, you'll be hearing from me two days ago at the National Press Club, having just listened to Kate Ellis's presentation. Um, they're on uh, early childhood education. So stick with us. We'll be back in just a second. Would you please join me in welcoming the opposition spokesperson on early childhood education, development and vocational education, Kate Ellis. Now, I'm happy to outline my long-term vision for the early childhood sector in Australia. It has at its centre children's development, their best interests, the most effective support that we can deliver during those critical first five years when we know that 90% of their brain development occurs. It is a system that is simple, that's affordable and effective for Australian parents to use, with a place down the road available like our school system. The quality early learning delivered in it will have improved our school results, be regarded as a vital part of our social and our economic infrastructure. Social mobility will be improved. Guaranteed places will see a significant increase in women's participation. It will be needs-based, utilising the information we already have access to, to properly target additional programs to where they're needed. Educators will be fairly paid the profession will be valued, turnover will be low. We will see early childhood education as just as crucial to this nation's future as our schools. Hi, it's Liam from the Early Education Show. We've just wrapped up watching uh, Shadow Minister Kate Ellis speak at the National Press Club on uh, the big issues facing early childhood education and care. And I have with me in a lovely cafe in Monica with our cappuccinos in front of us, a distinguished panel of early childhood experts, or alternatively, the only people I could rustle up to, <laughs> to sit and talk to me for a few minutes. So we might quickly go around and introduce ourselves. Simon Rosenberg. I'm the CEO of Northside Community Service. Anna Witte, I'm the Executive Director for Children's Services at Northside Community Service. Robbie McGarvey, I'm the Director of MOCA, Manica Early Childhood Centre in Manica. Thank you very much for joining me. So we've all just sat and heard um, Kate Ellis, I guess, deliver not exactly her vision for her for early childhood education, but her vision to have a vision for early childhood education uh, and care. There was some good stuff in the speech. There was some stuff that's going to take a while to figure out. I guess, Simon, do you, want, you, you look like you've already got a point to raise. I, I disagree with you a bit, Liam, in terms of a vision for a vision. I, I thought it was, uh, it was pretty good in terms of setting out the basic principles. The key one for me was very clearly saying this is about children and children's educational development. Um, all other things follow. Um, obviously, parents' workforce participation is an issue. Lots of other things are issues. But the fact that you put that at the front and centre, I think, was really critical. So as Leanne and Lisa both know in the podcast, I like to play devil's advocate a bit and draw some stuff out. But I guess one of the things we talked about afterwards, Anna, was that it was a bit disappointing. I guess uh, Kate Ellis didn't mention the effect on Abra when she was talking about the importance of vulnerable children or children at risk accessing early childhood education. She didn't sort of mention Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. Uh, were you hoping she might have mentioned a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, I think it's a really critical 
issue in Australia. In fact, I think it's it's shameful and I think it is something that has to be tackled head-on, called out and acknowledged and addressed. Like Simon, I was, I was really, really pleased that for the first time, um, Minister Ellis, that, I, that I've heard her speak for the first time, actually talked about children and children's right to access education, even though she was talking about children from three, not birth to three, which we know are irrefutably the most critical years and stages of a human's growth and development. But she also made the very clear point that all of the research irrefutably mm. says that what's good for children is also good for the economy, and that was, you know, her her main line, which I thought was really impressive. But Liam, to to your point about Indigenous children, yeah, I was a bit, I was disappointed she didn't call that out. I, you know, maybe she should have had more time, but I think it probably needs to be front, front and centre of any discussion when we're talking about the provision and access of early childhood education for Australian children, particularly those who are most disadvantaged <coughs> and most at risk in Australia. And I think I'm being deliberately a little unfair to have the discussion, but if after this round, round table with Simon and Anna and Robbie, I do have, excitingly, an interview with Kate Ellis recorded straight after where we do discuss that, that point. And, and to be fair, the, her, her, her speech today wasn't about that specific issue. But, um, you know, Robbie, I might turn to you as a leader of an incredible team of exceeding, exceeding uh, Mocha, which recently received the fantastic rating. You, know, you lead an incredible team of early childhood educators. I think one of the things that stood out for me today was how clear, crystal clear she was about the importance of early childhood educators in general, but the importance of professional recognition and wages. Was that good for you to hear as a leader? Yes, it was. That was great, Liam. Um, I think another point that um, hit home for me was she talked about the needs and views of parents and really making an effort to to listen to those needs and views. And what she's hearing is that a lot of parents are actually saying it's just getting too hard. So what I heard too is that she's going to focus on listening to families, listening to their needs, but then the other side of that, she was going to also focus on the educators. And um, I heard, or I really want to hear even more about what she can do for professionals in our profession and keeping them in our profession profession so they will uh, care and educate the children of those families that she's listening to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the speech was mostly a policy speech, so she was careful not to do too much attacking of the government, but what I was really glad to hear her be crystal clear about, and we've talked about this a lot of the podcast, is the, the loss of the PSCs and the loss oh, of professional oh, development yeah. funding for educators is completely not okay, and she was really crystal clear on that point. I think probably the big announcement from... Well, there are probably two big announcements from today, we might tackle them one at a time. The first one, I guess, was Labor entirely putting their cards on the table about their desire to move to towards expanding the Australia's current national partnership agreement um, from children at four years old to three years old. And that seemed like a mm. fairly firm commitment, mm. without a lot of detail, but a yeah. firm commitment that that was what they were going to move to. Um, you know, Anna, is that, that's obviously pretty great to hear. Are you... Are you yeah, how are you... I, think that, I think it's fantastic. I think it's a really important inclusion. I still do think that the, the discussion and the... And the focus also needs to be on children aged birth from birth to three years. Um, as I said before, mm. <clears throat> irrefutably, the, the greatest period of human growth and development is in the first three years of a developing human's life. So I think it, you know, I, I, I want to be gentle yes. <laughs> on Minister Ellison and the, the Labor Party for coming up with that. But I also think we, we cannot and should not stop at three. We need to look at, you know, That's the provision right. from birth to three. I, I look, I agree with Anna. That's absolutely right. Um, 
but I think what was imp I found impressive was how she put the argument for three-year-olds in the international context. So mm. she really brought out strongly how, you know, so many countries we would compare ourselves to already do this. Yeah. And she made the point strongly around... Uh, she gave the UK's example where the Labor government um, had introduced... Um, this provision and the Conservative government um, has extended it. Um, and, you know, I think the point she was making was this was about what was not just good for children, but good for the economy. So even the eco-rats would see the virtue in this. Um, and probably the other second big announcement is that Labor's going to embark on a national consultation tour. And I can hear Lisa Bryant whacking her head against her desk <laughs> as I say that. <laughs> yes, you've got more submissions to write, Lisa, get over it. Um, you know, Robbie, you've obviously been working in early childhood, particularly in the ACT, for a long time, close to the pollies and close to government. Are you... I, I talked to, in our other interview after this roundtable, I'll be speaking with Sam Page, um, yes. and I sort of asked her about consultation fatigue. Haven't we been over and over a lot of this mm -hmm. stuff? Are you, are you a bit over being consulted, Robbie, or are you looking forward to the chance to actually talk about why this is important again? Yeah, look, I know where you're coming from, Liam. Um won't close any doors to cons consultation. I really feel that um, if someone's opening the door to discuss it, then we need to be at the table or at the door to join them in that discussion. And I know um, Sam Page just recently at the ECA council meeting for the national board, she spoke um, very positively about um, different areas um, and positive visions for our children uh, nationally across Australia. So I'm really hopeful that some of the things that we're hoping will be achieved um, will come to fruition. Just talking about um, what Kate said today too about um, some of the other country stats. She did mention uh, New Zealand is, and she mentioned, you know, that there would be 20 years of, uh, 20 hours, there are 20 hours of free um, preschool given to every preschool child. child, And having having a knowledge of some of the directors and CEOs that work in New Zealand, um, and particularly the Christies, they too, you know, advocate for the 0 to 3, not only 0 to 5, and um, to say that it is just crucial that the money be given and funded towards education and care of those children um, as a priority, not just the children that we talked about from three to five and, you know, um, forgetting about the babies. Tony Christie talks about respect for care is only fair for children and she's done a whole research on that and it's just wonderful. And she'll be here in Australia on the 29th of um, October at the Tuggeranon Community Centre doing a Yeah Baby conference. Yeah. So. A free, a free plug for child space. We're happy to do that for them. Oh, we will, Robbie. We'll be there. I guess a big part of that speech from Kate Ellis was throwing down the gauntlet to the government in terms of trying to fill this vacuum we have between now and 2018 when the government's planned policies, which still have not been legislated and still have not been voted on, um, are due to come. So I guess we might go for final thoughts from all of you. So I guess Kate Ellis was talking about sort of you know, a 10-year vision about fundamentally changing the sector. What if you could restrict yourself to, I guess, one big change, what would you be, be looking for in the sector? I might go with you, Simon, as the CEO. That the focus is on education uh, as the paramount objective. And I think that's really where the gauntlet's being thrown down well, because I don't think this current government understands that education of children under five is absolutely critical for the development of the nation. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I agree with Simon. I think... <laughs> I, I would probably only add that I think... Um, 
I would like to see in my lifetime that education is a birthright from children from birth um, and their access should be no different as it is to the primary school in the area in which you live. Um, and contrary to some of the journos that were there today sort of suggesting that she was suggesting that it would be mandatory for people to do, I think it should be. I think it should be mandatory that children spend a portion of their time in early childhood settings. Um, I think it's in everyone's best interest and I think the, the impact that would have on, on individuals and then in turn Australian society would be um, profound. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree with that, Anna. And um, for that to happen, we have to have the money put there. Definitely. Um, she also brought up, yeah, the equal pay case, appropriate pay. She recognised that the um, de development funding had gone and, yes, she did speak about a 10-year-long vision. But we really want to be seeing things happen quickly. Yeah. Not in 10 years' time. We want it to start now. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's important to remember that 10 years is two lots of birth to five for a lot of children. I think, you know, yes. in terms yes. of summarising that for everyone, I think for me it would be about, you know, sort of formalising that structure around, as, as Kate Ellis said in her speech, that it's seen as part of the education system, which mm. I think it still is, and we still bounce from department to department. Mm. There's still massive disparities between state and territory and how that's viewed. But I think if it's viewed on that equal footing, yes. that will lead yeah. to a lot of big changes. I think, Liam, too, imagine if we think about this in the context of education and primary education, suggesting that children would stay at home and be homeschooled would just be laughed out, but yet, would, you know, people would be laughed out of town for that. But yet, for some reason, despite all of the brain research saying this is the most critical time where you will change people's life trajectory and outcome, we still think that it's acceptable that we don't make that provision as a state. I, I, yeah, I'm, you have to edit that out, Liam. I get too cross. <laughs> That's definitely staying in. Well, I'd like to thank Simon, Anna, and Robbie for joining me for this, for behaving, for behaving and being part of this very distinguished panel of experts. Um, remember to stay tuned. We're going to go straight to an interview with Kate Ellis herself, which she was very kind to give me some time for, and then Sam Page from ECA um, talking about yeah about what Kate said today. But thanks, everyone. Thanks, Liam. Thank you, Liam. Hi, I'm here with Kate Ellis, who's the Shadow Minister for Early Childhood Education uh, in the Labor Party, and I'm a bit surprised and shocked that she's agreed to speak with me very quickly for the Early Childhood Education show. Um, Minister, that was a fantastic... Sorry, Shadow Minister, that was a great speech where you were sort of outlining... The, the, the battle we have to have in early childhood is something you know we've been thinking about for a while is that it's the tinkering around the edge of stuff is not going to cut it anymore um, and you talked about that you're going to start sort of consultations on what this might look like look what are you sort of hoping that these consultations will will lead to look I think it's really important for us to stand up and acknowledge that I think the system is broken I, I think that we need to look at bold and perhaps radical reform. Now, we know that that's not necessarily going to be easy. Um, it, it won't certainly happen quickly. But we do need to look at, if we're going to adopt a different model um, to put children's development at the heart of our early childhood services, then we're going to need the modelling and the research to look at how we move to that. And we need to start that now. So 
Um, we're really looking forward to um, travelling around the country, speaking to some of our fantastic educators, um, but speaking to Australian parents, speaking to Australian academics, speaking to some of our um, children's experts, and let's put the ideas on the table. Let's see what is possible. Let's take the blinkers off and stop just looking at tinkering with the current system and trying to pretend that somehow we're going to fix all of the problems um, without fundamentally addressing the failures. Uh, absolutely. And I think you were... The speech was great because it was very much focused on policy and not politics, and you did a fantastic job. I maybe want to have a quick chat to you about politics. One of the concerns um, I and Lisa and Leanne have had in our shows we've put out so far is the particularly the impact on the Jobs for Families package on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander exactly. children. So we, we caught up with Geraldine Atkinson from yeah. Snake last week. Um, and obviously that wasn't the focus of the discussion today and it was more important to do the big policy vision. But, you know, is that, uh, is that a concern you and sort of Labor have? Absolutely. We're hugely concerned about... I mean, the proposal to um, say that um, budget-based funded services, that mobile services are somehow just going to transition um, to the mainstream arrangements is really incredibly... Um, out of touch. That is never going to work. Um, I mean, anyone who's been to some of these services would know that, um, I mean, some of them are literally tin sheds where there is um, educators in place. Some of these are the only safe place that children um, spend um, where they f feel secure. Um, the thought that we would jeopardise their future is just astonishing to me and we've argued to the government, we will continue to argue to the government that they need to ensure um, that we have services in place and otherwise they should never ever stand up and claim that they want to close the gap. Thank you very much, Adam Minister, really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Sam Page, the CEO of Early Childhood Australia. So, Sam, firstly, congrats on being our first double interview. This will be the second interview you've done oh. for the Early Education Show. But I think you're saying you still haven't listened to the show yet. Oh, I have. I've downloaded some of them, but I just don't ever get a chance to listen. I need to um, get some gym time. That's when I listen to podcasts. I need... <laughs> tells you I haven't been to the gym for three weeks. Fair least. enough. Well, we really appreciate it. So <laughs> you obviously just sat and listened to Kate's sort of um, speech then, which talks about her sort of desire to have a bit more of a vision for early childhood. One of the things I know ECA has particularly been talking about of late is that three-year-old preschool mm. um, accessibility requirement. Was it? Were you sort of great to hear, I guess, Labor sort of firmly commit to that today? Um, uh, yes, look, I think the stars are aligning around universal preschool. The evidence is just so increasingly strong and Australia is an outlier in terms of our poor level of participation. Even with 70%, that's still well below international standards. So I think it's good uh, to see more and more uh, commitment to three-year-old preschool becoming a reality. I think the difficulty is how and where do we deliver that? And Kate touched on that, but I think we've, we've still got a way to go to work that out. Yeah, the nuts and bolts are always going to be the hardest part of this and one of the things I sort of um, that it was I was sort of scrolling my Twitter feed while typing madly was there was a bit of talk of consultation fatigue. So one of the things that mm. Kate Ellis announced today was a um, labelled embark on national consultations with mm. families and providers, and um, which I think is great in general, but are you sort of worried in the sector about, and I know, look, ECA has to submit to everything that comes along as well, <laughs> are you sort of worried a bit about that or are you thinking it's just, it's probably a hurdle we, that's worth crossing? Look, uh, putting aside the personal vested interest <laughs> and, you know, uh, number of submissions we have to write, I think... Um, 
I think there is a degree to which this has been looked at under quite a microscope for some years now and I think we're anxious to see some reform and while I, I never want to put an end to consultation I think that we should be doing that on an ongoing basis. Uh, I do think we need to make some changes as a matter of urgency. I think uh, families are, are hitting an affordability crisis. I think we've got a lot of children dropping out of the system. I think we've got uh, a, a problem with supply and demand where we've got massive oversupply in some areas and undersupply in others. I think we can't afford to delay that. So if we could combine some uh, you know, more immediate reform with some, some further consultation, that would be good. But I wouldn't want to be putting everything on hold for a long, lengthy consultation process. I would say also that this, you know, we, we have been saying for a number of years now uh, the system needs an overhaul. And when we looked at it uh, with uh, Deborah Brennan from the, from the Social Policy Research Centre, we looked at all the international models and we looked at the delivery mix in Australia and we thought very hard about what would work best in this country right now uh, to improve access for disadvantaged children, to improve affordability, to lift workforce participation while maintaining a focus on child development. And that was around subsidy reform and we looked at some of these issues about should we have no private providers or a different mix of providers, should we have services built on schools sites and all of that has a lot of um, negative consequences and we came up with the with for ECA the position being actually if we can get the subsidies right we can take a bit longer to work through the the provider mix while still not um, letting down this current generation of children so I am quite I, I absolutely um, hear what uh, the, I think those big issues that Kate Ellis has, has talked about today are very live and very important issues, but at the same time I think we could do something more immediately to improve access for vulnerable children right now. We've got to remember in two years' time these children have missed out. It's too late. We can't afford to wait five years to fix the system. We've, we've got a whole generation of children there that miss out in the meantime. So we need to do something now and be looking at the 5, 10, 15 year outlook. Thank you very much, Sorry, Sam. No. Really appreciate it. Well, we hope you enjoyed that take on uh, Kate Ellis's address. We will move on to our uh, usual recommendations for the week. So these are sort of things to watch or read or listen to um, that have crossed our paths during the week. And Leanne, you've never got to go first, I think, in our first seven episodes. So please, over to you. What are you recommending for us this week? Thank you, Liam. I feel very happy to be the first recommendation this week. And it's not a conversation article, even though I have had requests for that. Sure, I'm sure. Working, I'm still <laughs> working to the ban on my conversation articles. Um, but this one is from the States and it is a, it's from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The reason why I chose it, it's called Early Childhood, The Best Investment. And what I found when I read it was, it talks obviously about how critical the investment is in early childhood education for the future of our nation. And this is when there's a country that is about to take a vote um, to see whether it's going to be Trump or Clinton. Mm, it'll be interesting to come back and talk about that one. And uh, this this is really saying about the, the critical 
importance of early childhood education. But my thinking about it is if you subbed out everything that had a reference to the US in it, you would and put in a reference to Australia in it, it would be exactly the same picture. And, you know, all of the challenges around the states, all of the challenges around where money is spent, how effective it is, it's exactly the same. And I just thought it's there's so much alignment every time I read these articles. So that's my recommendation. Thanks, Leanne. Um, what about you, Lisa? So mine this week is something really simple from the Sydney Morning Herald, but I think it's something that services and educators need to think about. It's about the Poverty in Australia 2016 report prepared by ACOS and released earlier this week. What it says is that 17% of all children in Australia are living in poverty. 17%. It's 730,000 children. And I'd, please read it if you haven't read the article. I haven't linked into the report yet. Um, but I'd just like everyone to think about the fact that 30% of all children aged 0 to 12 are in education and care services. And I wonder what the crossover is between the number of children in po poverty and the number of children in services. Are we, in fact, seeing those children in our services? I know some services would definitely say, yes, that's what most of our people are. Um, but others would say, well, no, we're in a pretty middle-class kind of an area. We're not seeing so many poor children. But I also wonder what the impact of the Jobs for Families policy will be on that, if there'll be less children in poverty in our services, if they'll be the ones, in fact, that will miss out the most on access. The ones who most need to access. Yep. Yep. All right. Thanks, What's Lisa. Yours, Liam? Mine is, and I have also met the similar challenge given to Leanne. Um, mine was to do something that's a bit less depressing for a change. So I have uh, done my best. Um, I'm linking to an interview on The Guardian with um, the illustrator Robert Ingpen. He's about 80 years old and has done uh, illustrations for a number of very you know famous and well-regarded books. But it's just a really, it's a really lovely interview um, on what he calls the value of childhood dreaming. Um, it's a little selfish, so Rob, I've just finished reading The Wind and the Willows with my daughter uh, Annabelle, and Robert. It was a beautiful illustrated version, and the illustrations were by Robert Ingpen, which is why sort of the name hit me. But um, he also talks about. Um, I won't sort of you know read the whole thing, but he talks about there's a fantastic festival um, for children's art in South Australia, which is coming up uh, pretty soon. So if you're in South Australia, um, check out the link I'll put in the show notes and have a look. But um, yeah, book you know book, books and children are some of my probably my favourite crossover topic, and um, it's always great to hear from illustrators and authors on you know what sort of matters um, to them in terms of uh, working with children. But um, and I yeah. think you, you really did. A did well with that challenge, Liam. It was a beautiful, beautiful article, and it certainly wasn't depressing in any way. Excellent, yeah. And there's actually a nice link within the link within the article itself to some examples of his illustrations in other works. So definitely worth checking out. But um, uh, just before we do our final wrap up um, for tonight, we. I think all three of us have a joint recommendation this week, which is, if you haven't already, um, is hit up the Four Corners website and watch the most recent episode from uh, the Monday Just Gone, um, which is called Forgotten Children and is about the um, uh, over 120 children uh, still in immigra Australian funded and run immigration detention centres in Australia. It was, uh, it was harrowing watching. It was really hard to, to watch and... and 
uh, see what we as a country have done to these uh, children. But it's incredibly important, and I think particularly those of us in early childhood education that we that we watch it. And I know, look, Lisa and Leon, you both both watched it. Did you have sort of anything to add? Yes, Liam. I think that that as a as an early childhood professional, you don't have a choice whether to be an advocate or not for children. You must be. That's that's absolutely one of the obligations. It's embedded in your um, code of ethics. Uh, early childhood Australia it's embedded in all sorts of places and just watching those teachers talk about the children I think that they deserve every bit of support that we can offer as well and so I think not just watching that program but doing something as a result of it is so important. Yeah, those teachers were examples of advocates in action, you know, like they were advocating for children who would, you know, like who have had their childhood, their lives destroyed by being, you know, imprisoned in Nauru. I'd just like to say that there's also, you know, as horrible as horrible as it is for those children, there's also the opportunity cost of what it's costing us to keep those children imprisoned. It's between September 2012 and September 2016, it's cost Australia $4.36 billion to keep people on Nauru and Manus Island. Now, that's about, you know, the amount of money that they're, they're um, fighting about for the early education and care package. Um, you know, so it's, it's an incredible sum of money and it could be just used so much better than by taking... You know, children's childhoods away from them. Yeah, I think the other amazing the, the, those incredible teachers that um, were interviewed, who of course were all women, those incredible women who had who had stood up and um, they are risking, they are literally risking jail time for speaking out. So because of the insane laws that the uh, Liberal Party proposed and the Australian Labor Party, Labor Party in their abject cowardice allowed to go through. Um, they could be charged for speaking to Four Corners. Um, I'd be really interested to see if the government will have the guts to do so. But you know that they they're willing to pay you know an incredible price for their advocacy. And you know I can do no more than um, than than sing their praises and and hope it leads to some sort of uh, some sort of change. Um, but we will begin to wrap up. We'd like to, as always, just thank everyone who's rated and reviewed us on iTunes. I know it sounds strange. We're always sort of begging for, for gold stars, but uh, we promise it's not just to fluff our own egos. It, re- it really does uh, help in the iTunes ranking for it to bump up and means other professionals can find us and, and, and hear us uh, go on and on. So if you haven't had a chance yet, you know, please do um, give us a rating. In particular, your review is really valuable. And as ever, we promise to give a nice big shout out to anyone uh, who who does so? Um, you, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find the show on Facebook now. So if you head to facebook.com forward slash early edu show, so early edu show, um, the same handle on Twitter, so twitter.com forward slash early edu show, um, and then you can also speak to us individually. So you can find me at Liam McNicholas on Twitter, and me at Lisa J Bryan, and me at Leanne Gibbs three. We hope everyone has a. <laughs> well, we hope everyone has a great uh, weekend. We'll be back with you again uh, next week for more discussion. But until then, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me.